Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. It's good to be in a warm place. And uh, I have a lot of announcements, so I'll see if I can get through them without sticking my foot in my mouth more than usual. Um, just some housekeeping. Um, we have, we don't, we don't pass a plate for offering, but we have a beautiful gold offering and tithes box in the back. It's gold painted. It's not real gold. We're, we're just a poor Baptist church, but there's time if you want to, if you give offerings that way. We will have communion next Sunday in the morning. There won't be an evening service. Ladies Bible study starts their second class in Gail's apartment number three. That's in the big white building behind us. And there are books, if you ladies need a book, you're welcome to come. But if you come, park in front of the parking lot. Last time we moved our cars over to the Fellowship Hall and nobody wanted to be the first one to park close. Please park close, that's why we're doing it. Ladies, we need volunteers to do children's church for kids ages three to seven because the Rafferty's are going to be gone. So if you'd like to volunteer to help with Children's Church, see Mrs. White. Jackie, could you raise your hand so everybody knows? Raise it high. There you go. I see that hand. Jackie's husband, would you raise your hand? Isaac is the man to see about the True Church Conference, I got it right this time, that's coming up very quickly about showing up, getting a ride, scholarships, free housing. Uh, are you doing free t-shirts this year? Okay. In the back, moms and dads, there is a little worksheet for your kids. It, for during the church service. It's a, you can use this or not, it, it's up to you, but it, it, it's an activity to help your kids stay focused during the church service. I think I should take one of these. What is the title of the sermon? What book, chapter, and verse? Something I learned about God today. Three words that I heard a lot in the sermon. Here's a picture of something I heard in the sermon. Questions I have. So, let's see. And... One last announcement. We have a free book table downstairs, and here is a book by Dave Ramsey, Baby Steps for Millionaires. I have read it. I am on my way to being a multimillionaire. Emphasis is on my way. I don't promote a lot of stuff, but he's got some really good steps to think about your finances. So this is downstairs. Um, I got it for $30, and I didn't like it, so I asked for a refund. I didn't like it because there's a research report in the back for how he got his data, and I thought, I'm not paying $30 for a research report. I wanted Baby Steps for Millionaires, a full book full of them. So I got half a book, but you can look at it. Did I miss anything? You got it. Okay. You are a tough act. You even left your bookmark here to help me out. 
Yes. No, sir. You're good. He did leave me a bookmark here, which is helpful because to remind me of something before I pray, and that is to remind you about our scripture memory. If you're uh, new with us, if you're not familiar, or if you just want to hear me drone on about it again, we do emphasize a new scripture verse every week. We encourage you to, at the very least, to meditate on it and perhaps memorize it. There's a little bookmark. We have some in the back. You can pick it up, and it'll have each week uh, for you there. This week's verse, of course, is in our bulletin, as we normally do. And I'll be teaching one more class on Wednesdays. If you want to tune in, some, emphasize some of the tools that I use to help remember passages of Scripture. We treasure God's Word in our, in our heart that we might not sin against him. One of the strengths of the resources that you can have is to hide God's word in your heart. It will not only bless you, but others that you might come into contact with. This is a particularly dear verse to me, one that I have meditated on quite a bit. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't done so in the past, if this is not your routine, at least for this one week, I would like you to consider meditating on this passage. Pull out your bulletin, look at Psalm 103. It's one of my favorite. We're going to pray in a minute, and I'll give you, when I'm done reading this, I'll give you a minute to pray privately, to prepare your heart to worship Christ today. And maybe in doing so, you would think, on these very scripture verses, and then I'll pray for us corporately. So let me read, you pray, and then I'll pray. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Let us pray. Father, we have gathered together today as your people to bless your holy name, a name that is above every name. We're thankful for simply who you are, creator and sustainer of all things. And beyond that, to us, you have redeemed us from our sin. You have granted us forgiveness in Christ our Lord. Not for some of the transgressions that we have done, but all those that we will do. All of them atoned for by Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so I pray for myself and your people that thinking on the forgiveness 
sin that is in Christ our Lord would cause us to truly from the depths of our soul bless your holy name. To praise and to worship you. You have redeemed truly our life from absolute destruction. And beyond that, you have crowned us with great love and mercy that will never end. I pray regardless of whatever circumstance any of us might find ourselves in today, for those that have truly confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, I pray, Lord, that we will look forward to that blessed hope. Jesus Christ, pray for the return. Think of enduring this time now as sojourners and pilgrims in this land, looking forward our eternal state with you, in which is fullness of joy and pleasures evermore. I pray in this life, would you grant to your people joy and pleasure, even in difficult times, even in discouraging times, and even in times in which we are distracted away from that which is truly joy and peace, and that is Christ our Lord. We bless your holy name. I do pray also, Lord, would you redeem many sons and daughters? May the very ones within our midst who see others who savor Jesus Christ, may that overflow as a witness of your grace and mercy that they indeed might drink from that same cup. Bless us this, now this day. Receive our worship and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Let's take our hymn books and stand and turn to number 43. This is my Father's world, number 43. The earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord, Psalm 24. <clears throat>
grace greater than our sin, where sin multiplied, grace multiplied. <laughs> from Psalm uh, chapter 91 this morning. The Pew Bible, the page is 497. So as you're turning over to that, I'll just give a few thoughts. Uh, I believe this psalm is very applicable to us today as Christians. We're clearly on the battlefield with the reprobate minds of so many of our government officials and the chaos that, that it creates. It certainly confirms for us that our only source of peace and security is in our God. R.C. Sproul says Psalm 91 is a refuge psalm that provides God's people through all generations 
with an antidote to fears and anxiety. There are three strophes, an affirmation that God is our refuge in verse 1 and 2, a description of how the Lord is our refuge in verses 3 through 13, and a confirmation by God himself that he is, in fact, our refuge, verses 14 through 16. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, he will deliver you from the name, from the snare of the fowler and from the daily pestilence, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but if you will not, if you will not come near, you will, not, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent will trample underfoot. Serpent, you will trample underfoot, because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for being our loving Father. And Father, set us free from fear and anxiety because we trust you completely and because we live entirely at your disposal for your glory. We know we are nothing, but Father, our hearts go after you with intensity because you are everything, and we thank you for your bountiful blessings daily. And Father, we ask your blessings on the offering today, and we ask that you be with our leaders here, shelter their minds, and Father, be with the children and protect them. And Father, thank you for your truth. May we seal it in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.
hymnbooks again and stand and turn to number 353. We'll sing, I know whom I have believed. Women will sing verse 2 only and then men on verse 3. So we'll all sing together in verses 1 and 4. Women only on verse 2, men on verse 3, and we'll all sing the chorus together. So. 
Thank you, Blake, Amber, and church. And hope Christ is your vision. I like that hymn. I like the focus of it. We've taken a temporary detour in our journey through the Gospel of John. Well, Lord willing, I'll pick that up again next week, beginning in chapter 20, if you want to read ahead for next week. Last couple of weeks, we took a break, if you will, to address a few issues. Two weeks ago, we stood in solidarity with our sister churches in Canada and along with some in the United States that would stand as well. We're taking a stand for biblical morality. It's really putting the government on notice that this idea that Canada passed a law, anti-conversion therapy law, unanimously passed that law, that ostensibly taught that the Bible, or says that the Bible is a myth, and what we teach is wrong, and imprisonable, or by fine. We proclaim a transforming power, the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. That salvation is a change in someone's nature on the inside. It will change everything about them. We call that regeneration. This gospel is a conversion therapy, if you will simply through the proclamation of its truth, that Christ has risen from the dead. That is the gospel. As Paul would tell, remind his protege, Timothy, who he would also tell to preach the word in season and out of season, when it's acceptable and when it's not, he would tell them that he is suffering and he is bound in, in 2 Timothy 2, but he would say the word of God is not bound. They may imprison us and they may fine us, but they will not stop the word of God to accomplish his purposes. Can I remind you that the gates of hell are not strong enough and no legislative body can Stop this truth of converting the hearts of men. Last week, we also stood in solidarity with others who were reminded of the sanctity of human life. Human life is valuable. All human life is valuable because God has made mankind in his image and he does so repeatedly as a new creation is brought about at the very moment of conception. And though we may not understand, appreciate what's going on, in time we get additional tools to see the marvel of all of this, but God knows it from the very beginning. 
As the psalmist said, even in darkness, it is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, as the darkness is light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it well. Others may not know, God knows, and we know because we believe him and his word. Our cultural drift towards celebrating depravity in its various forms, whether it's murdering young children or really murdering the whole idea of marriage and gender, it's a destructive path that leads to, ironically, destruction in and of itself when you kill children and you kill families. It seems like a tidal wave, certainly not just this on our border, but within our own territory. And as we attempt to stem this oncoming tsunami of nonsense and insanity, it may seem that we're outnumbered. Our voice of wisdom is mocked by the fools who claim to be wise. They claim to bow at the altar of science, except when the facts don't line up with the God of their imagination. When their worldview is interfered with and their debauchery is exposed. What do we do? Well, last few weeks we talked about just proclaiming the truth, right? We're going to do it in love, certainly, but stand on the truth. And I know we need to pray. We need to pray for the truth to go forward. And we do. We pray for all men. We pray that they would come to know Jesus Christ and that their minds would be regenerate. That they would come and to see and savor Jesus Christ. We, we pray that their ideas and their ideology would come crashing down, which it indeed will. We pray that God would spare us. We seek his face. But as I thought about this and close this section up, I thought, well, what else can we do? Not that those are minor things. Preaching and praying, they are key, and we should certainly do them. But as I thought more about it, I said, well, what else could we, could we do? And there have been people who put forward ideas beyond that or in addition to preaching and praying. Some have thought, well, we ought to infiltrate the political arena, perhaps create some sort of nonprofit to combat the evils of our culture. I would agree we need to be responsible citizens, and I'm not arguing against doing that, or to 
participate or support other organizations that perhaps are designed to address some of these issues. But the charge of the church ultimately is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to make disciples and teach them all that Christ has taught us for the next generation to stand in the midst of an oncoming sea of debauchery. So we'll pray for the gospel, we'll proclaim the gospel. But what can we do individually in our own lives and in our own homes? I'd argue that we can practice the gospel. In other words, be Christians. To know the truth and to live the truth. It's a call to contend for the faith in your own heart. To live like Christ. I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I think this book addresses this what to do question in a number of places. And I'd like to just spend hours on it, but I'll try to whittle this down to a few key concepts. Notice most notably verse 15 of chapter 2, and we'll read it in its context in a minute. 2.15, the will of God is this, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, beloved, I'd like to put to silence a lot of ignorant and foolish people right now. I'd like for that to happen. And here in our text, Peter, who is in that kind of debased environment as well, is telling God's people here, challenging them, in addition to the proclamation and prayers, but that they would also be attuned to their own practice in, of Christian life. And by doing so, God will use this in his providence, in his will, to silence the fools. Well, let's read it in its, in its context, and then we'll discuss a few ideas. We'll go ahead and begin at verse 1 in chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to, note this, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying 
in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They, dissemble, they stumble because they disobey the word. That's key. As they were destined to do. That is, all who rebel will stumble. But, contrast, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And servants, be subject to your own masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust. Let us pray. Father, I pray in the hearing and reading of your word, may you, through the power of the Spirit, enlighten our minds for us to be able to see and savor Jesus Christ, to grow in grace and the knowledge of you, and equip us for the work of the ministry. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I highlighted verse 15, if you notice. It does talk about God's will. A lot of people wonder what God's will is. Well, he's revealed a lot of it. It's in his word. And here is one of those examples that's explicitly stated. What's God's will? What is the will of God? <clears throat> well, here in this context, it's saying that by doing good, <clears throat> you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
We want to contend for the faith. We want to silence the ignorance, if you will, that's out there. And here, the key mentioned by Peter in this instance is by doing good. What's doing good? What is he talking about doing good here? This is not talking about random acts of kindness. That's fine to do that, and as you're, as you're motivated, do so, please. What's in focus here is not r- that kind of good. It is a moral goodness, an internal goodness. Notice in verse 1, as it puts it in its context, he's saying, do this, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Because that is moral evil, right? Instead, the opposite is to do moral goodness. It is this character of the Christian, the true character of someone who practices Christianity and isn't just someone who signs up to a particular march or become a political leader or whatever they might do. All of those are fine. This is secondary. Primary is to examine your own heart. Moral goodness, that indeed Christ-like character, which would silence this, the fools mentioned here. It's hard dealing with the moral decay of our culture. I find it very challenging. But Peter's argument, and I think it's really hit me hard even this week thinking through this. Seeing all of the evil in the world should prompt us to look in the mirror. Examine our own heart. To do so, let me just narrow it down to a tighter package in verse 11 and 12. To first consider the status of who you are as a Christian. Verse 11, he begins this way, Peter addressing the people he's writing to as people of, of, people of God. He addresses them as what? Beloved. Verse 11. That is the status of those that are in Christ. Don't miss that. You are loved by God in a unique way. People have this idea of, of spreading God's love a little too thin. It is truly characteristic of who he is, but there is a unique relationship to those that are in union with Christ, that the Father loves the Son, and those that are in the Son are then said to be beloved in a unique way. And it is because our union with Christ, then we have union with others that are in Christ, and hence Christians. These are the beloved from the foundation of the world. Loved by God. Listen how he describes it in verse 9 and 10, just backing up a little bit, speaking of the status of this beloved, of who you are in Christ as well. 
He describes it in the, the, the analogy of a priesthood. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's the status of everyone that is in Christ. Elect, that is chosen by God. It isn't just an idea of, oh, well, do you want to be on his team or not? He chose you. Just as he, in his, by way of analogy, Peter is using Israel. Just as God chose them, so all of those who would be in Christ, he has chosen them. And, but not just pick them out, but beyond that, has a purpose to be a priesthood. That is to uh, go out and be a mediator in, the own, in the, your own world in which we live. He'll say the next phrase here, what? He's done this so that you would proclaim the excellencies of him. A holy nation, he says. That is, set apart, and he's talking about moral holiness. A people for his own possession. That's the imagery of beloved relationship, a covenant relationship. And by recognizing your status and your calling, you're called out of the, the darkness, if you will, into the light. You're now a very people of God who are like everyone else that is in the quote-unquote fallen world, the depraved world around you, but you've received mercy. So proclaim it. In verse 11, he's using this terminology, notice here, twofold, a sojourner and an exile. What does he mean by that? Again, this is analogy taken from the Old Testament where God's chosen people, a holy nation, were brought out and they essentially lived much of their life as foreigners. That's the idea of a sojourner, a foreigner. Someone that was going to their residency, their land, but they weren't there yet. Well, that's the condition of those that are in Christ that Peter is preaching to and that we're preaching to you today. If you're in Christ, there's a sense in which the culture should feel a bit foreign. So don't be too discouraged that it's falling apart. It's just becoming more evident that there is a distinction this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. That's the next idea. Not only it feels a bit foreign, but it also, it's just temporary. That's the idea of an exile. Go back to chapter 1 to understand the context of how this fits. Peter begins this letter as an apostle sent one by Jesus Christ himself. And he describes the beloved in a different way. He says, to those who are elect exiles, that is chosen, but exiles. Exiles of what? Of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, it is providentially brought about by God. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ 
at the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. They'll need both grace and peace given to their circumstance. They are part of the dispersion. Historically, you understand this time in this century. You've been indicating the beginnings of this persecution under Nero. Nero, the Roman leader, decided he wanted a building project because he liked to build new things, but in order to do so, you have to get rid of old things, even if you don't own them. So he decides to burn the city. And of course, you need a scapegoat, and the Christians were that. They became the scapegoat to the fires in Rome. So the people didn't want them around anymore. Even the people who lived there then became foreigners and exiles to a great degree. That's who he's writing to. It's a difficult time for the church. The land is full of wickedness, treachery, and treason. Their own possessions and property are being taken from them. They're being persecuted on all sides. But Peter's admonition to them, which is applicable today to us as well, is regardless of whatever circumstance the world and the culture might be in at the time, you're not of the culture. You're of Christ. You're not of this world. In it, but not of it. You've been brought out of that darkness into what? The light. The culture should feel foreign. You wish they would stop their blasphemy. You wish they would stop their immorality their wickedness, but they won't. Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The light just simply exposes that evil and reminds them of their guilt. Don't be too discouraged about the decline of the culture. We will teach and proclaim we will certainly pray, but at the same time, remember your status is a sojourner, an exile of sorts, temporary. Christ is eternal. He has promised not to leave you as orphans, John 14. He is coming. John finishes the book of Revelation, what? With what? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I think that is a prayer we can pray daily. And sometimes the circumstances in the culture remind us to pray a little more intently. <coughs> Peter, uh, should I say, Peter is consistent with what Paul taught, another apostle, to the church of Philippi. You may remember, I'll just read it for you, Philippians three twenty. When he reminds them about citizenship, that ultimately it is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
He concludes, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, beloved. So consider the state in which you really exist. It is in Christ, beloved sojourner, exile. That's the hope of the believer looking for a blessed hope. The second thing to do is not only consider the status, but your very own soul. And this is driving inwards back to our text in verse 11, verse Peter 2, 11. In this dark and wicked environment and the culture that's falling apart and the persecution that is occurring, he tells them to consider their status, but he also says to consider their own soul. That's that look inward that I'm talking about, moral goodness. He says in verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The flesh. The flesh here is used to describe that part of unredeemed humanity. It remains with you in this exile. It remains with you now that you will need to abstain from these passions, this moral evil is what he's talking about, that are part of this flesh. Peter will say in chapter 1, if you want to flip back, verse 13, this has been his message all along. He tells the God's people this, prepare your minds, verse 13 of chapter 1. Prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the positive aspect, if you will, to fulfill that charge to abstain from the passions of the flesh Positively, it is what? Put your hope on Christ. Remember his grace, that is, his, his gift. And ultimately, it will be consummated at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why the church prays for Christ to come. But prepare your mind for it. This is the catalyst for a sober mind. To have their hope fully on Christ's grace. So many things that can distract you, pull you away, understandable, but ultimately look to the victory that is in Christ. It's sooner than you think. Verse 14, then the, the other aspect is what you, what you don't do. The first one is what you should do in consideration of your soul is then don't be conformed, he says, to the what? Passions of your former ignorance. Same idea there of abstaining of the passions of the flesh. Here it's phrased as passions of your former ignorance. What? That's the state you're in prior to regeneration, right? You walked like everyone else walked. 
ignorance in that sense, in not having the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> the transformation of your mind, the regeneration of it. So don't do that. Why? Verse 15. As he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your, note this, conduct. Since it is written, you should be holy, for I am holy. Holy means to be set apart. The holiness here is referring to what? Then external behavior. That your conduct would be more morally pure. This is talking about the actions of a Christian. How will that occur? Is he asking us to run around with some sort of moral checklist to, to make sure we have all our do's and don'ts correct? No. External conduct of holiness, of demonstrating Christ in the world, fundamentally comes from an internal change. It is an expression of an internal conviction brought about by the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 17. I mean, still in chapter 1. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. He's talking about this temporary life. How, how do you do that? Well, verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You were redeemed. That's the redemption of it. The futility of what? Your mind. You have a new mind in Christ. You're redeemed how? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This... Abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Not conforming to those passions. Are brought about through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Who transforms your mind. And it is a call to remember that. And to consider that. Particularly when you're confronted with moral evil in the world in which you live. Note first that you're, you're really not part of it. The fact that it bothers you should demonstrate, oh, yeah, I, I can't really feel totally at home. And then to examine your own heart for the, the lack of conformity to the holiness of God. And remember, these passions of the flesh that will remain in with you until your body is redeemed in a glorified state. They're waging war against you. Drop back to chapter 2 and verse 11. Notice that phrase. In describing these passions of the flesh, he emphasized the fact that these are engaged in a warfare he says, these which wage war against your soul. There's an internal battle for your soul. And he goes on all the time. 
The devil's not taking a break. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It doesn't stop. It goes on all the time. And our failure to examine and look at it may leave a breach in the gate, if you will. One little opening in the gate, it is as if the... The imagery here is if there's warring passions trying to break their way in and you just leave the gate unlocked. Well, I'll just play with this a little bit over here. This isn't that bad and no one will know after all. I'll just dabble my foot in it, if you will. Well, you wouldn't dabble your foot in sulfuric acid, no, would you? But I'll try this a little bit. Maybe this is... Not as potent. Well, it's more potent. The enemy is at the gate. That's the idea. Trying to push through. The enemy is looking for a crack in your spiritual armor, if you will. Don't take fire in your bosom. It will burn you. John Owen put it this way. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. I was told that years ago. I didn't know it was from Owen, but I did write it in the front cover of my Bible, and it's been a good reminder. It's really a summary from Romans 8, and I'll just read one little selection for you, 8.13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's the passions that, Peter is saying to abstain from and not to be conformed to. If you live according to that way, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit, and that's a capital S in our translations, which is right. It's talking about the Holy Spirit, not the human spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's how a Christian lives. By the power of the Holy Spirit, putting to death these passions of the flesh. The Christian has a new disposition of the soul that desires to follow Christ in, in purity and holiness. I have a few minutes, so go ahead and turn to Ephesians 5. Hold your mark here. We'll be back with a final statement. And you can make your applications the way you wish. I think you, you'll, you'll get it here in a minute. When I'm using this illustration of, of, of lock the gate, close the door, check the armor that there's no cracks in it. Many in Christianity today think it's, it's cool to appropriate cultural crassness. And smile at debased innuendo. Sadly, I've even heard it from pulpits. No wonder it makes its way to the pew. Perhaps they're doing that to some degree to be just a little bit edgy. To kind of just fit into society. But remember what Peter would remind us. That we're actually foreigners here. There, There should be... A categorical distinction and what are Christians marked by their conformity to Christ who is absolutely holy 
I can't imagine Jesus Christ getting up and preaching some of the sermons that are preached and some of the dialogue that is um, communicated among those that would proclaim Christ. I just want to see Ephesians 5 before we move on. It's a similar tack where Paul tells the church at Ephesus to be imitators of God. That's the idea, right? That, that's, that's the be holy as I am holy. Be a follower, an imitator of God. Do so as beloved children. Again, he appoints to the fact of who you are in Christ. You are the beloved. And then he says, walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave uh, himself up for, for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This walking is talking about your manner of life. That's what he's talking about. It is talking about your conduct, your good deeds, if you will, your moral purity. Verse 3. If you missed it here, he ties it in clearly so that we're not missing it. But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as it is not proper for saints. The word saints is holy ones. It shouldn't even be accused of something like that. Because that's not who you are. And then he'll go on beyond that. The obvious things there in verse 4... Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Of course it is. Think about, oh, would Christ tell that joke? Would he be that crude? Would he be that foolish or that filthy? Of course not. Would you include that in your prayer? Instead, let there be thanksgiving. That's the positive note. Right? It isn't just about, oh, well, don't do this, don't do that. The idea is recognize who you are in Christ, and then your response is going to be thanksgiving, praise, joy. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's what we proclaim. That's what we teach. That's why we're against the things that we're against, no doubt. But then we don't need to be part of that in our moral behavior. He says, don't let anybody deceive you with empty words. In other words, someone that would come along and say, ah, I did not all that bad. You're just the holy roller. You're just a Puritan. You don't like to have any fun. No, I do like to have a lot of fun. There's a lot of fun in Christ. There's a lot of fun in in morality. And I'm not suggesting to throw a big guilt trip. Understand, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. I'm just saying, don't cover it up. If you have those issues, confess them. If you need help, cry out to Christ. Ultimately, look to him and the goodness that is in him. It'll satisfy you much more. You want to destroy pornography, young men? Look to Christ. It is much better. And no guilt. And conforming and doing things within the pattern which he has designed, it is absolutely beautiful and wonderful 
and greater than you could ever imagine. But Satan would say, has God said? And the answer is yes, he has in his holy word. So don't let anybody deceive you with empty words to say, oh, it's okay. No, it's because of these things. Note the text, verse 6. It is because of these things that the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. You know how you can see the wrath of God on the disobedience right now? All these babies getting killed. You want to see the wrath? God lets you have what you want. You want to go ahead and destroy your own culture? Kill all your children? You don't even have any more? And your culture's falling apart now? You want to have what you, you want? You know what his wrath is? His wrath is letting people pretend and think that they're a girl when they're really a boy and vice versa? And then the whole world creating laws that you, you have to affirm this and not just affirm it, but you also have to celebrate it and support it? Insanity it, it is. But the wrath of God will come on those sons of disobedience. That's who we were. But that's not who we are. So he says, don't become partners with them. Verse 7. At one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. He's talking about your moral character. Live that way. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, true, and right. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Pray if you have questions about it. Discern what's pleasing and then take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We're exposing them in our preaching and our proclamation in our prayers. But remember, this is also a call for the inside to examine your own heart. Are you taking part in those very things. Back to our text in chapter 2. Of 1 Peter. In verse 12. So we're going to think about. Our status if you will. Our own soul. And then really what statement then we would make. If we do that. If we have holy conduct. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, that is your, your moral goodness, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Conduct mentioned here in verse 12 is the external behavior. People don't know what you're really thinking on the inside. They don't really know your motives. They might assume them. They might impugn them. But they do know your actions. It has a big impact on the gospel. That's what he's getting at. The very message you're proclaiming against the wickedness of the world. That is the gospel. And your conduct will either affirm that or deny it. That's why he's asking them to look on the inside. One, one common reason, perhaps you've run into it before, of why some people don't attend church in general or maybe a church specifically is because what? Well, they, I know so-and-so and they're a hypocrite. 
They didn't manage their external behavior. I'm not saying that's an excuse for it. And sometimes they'll just say that in general and not specific because they're just looking for excuse. I understand that. But the point that Peter's making is have honorable conduct so that you don't give them an excuse. The idea is to adorn the gospel then with your godly conduct. May that be what drives your behavior. Chapter 3 in the same epistle, look over one chapter. That's what is behind this idea of instruction of submission of wives to husband. Submission in a particular relationship that he's pointing out. Verse 1 of chapter 3, the wives are to be subject to their own husbands. Even if some do not obey the word. That's phraseology, what? If you don't obey the word, you're what? You're lost. Okay? Except for today. Today, if you just sign a card, you're saved. Doesn't matter if you obey or not. <laughs> no, it matters. And so, that's the phraseology he uses. And so, why is she going to be submissive to one that is, is not a Christian, if you will, so that by her moral behavior, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful behavior and pure conduct, that is, moral excellence, moral behavior... Here, in a specific example, an illustration, this is in a, a home where the husband is lost and the wife is a believer. She's charged to examine her own conduct, to be respectful and pure, and that will have a big influence in the proclamation of the gospel, either directly by her or by others. In other words, this is what a Christian is. Oh, I see it in action. I see it in conduct. He goes on and emphasizes, he's talking about uh, good conduct that comes from the in interior, the good uh, from the inside. And then he does mention the outside by illustration, verse 3, don't let the adorning be external. In other words, just external, just putting on a show. And the example, the braiding of the hair and putting on gold and jewelry or the clothing you wear. He's not suggesting that you don't wear nice clothes or makeup. Women are beautiful and it is a great thing to wear nice clothes and jewelry. But the point is, and particularly here in the way they would put hair and gold, it, it was to be flashy, to show their wealth. Today we show our wealth in different ways. But nevertheless, that's the idea, that it isn't just going to be putting on a show, putting something external. Instead, verse 4, note this, but let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's a great illustration of it, isn't it? She's not putting on a show, something going on in the heart, respectful and pure conduct. 
That's imperishable beauty that it tra far transcends anything else. Back to our text in chapter 2. Gentiles is mentioned here. Ethne in Greek. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles are really standing in for unbelievers or in my illustration in chapter 3, some that don't obey the word. Same type of thing. Keep it honorable in front of unbelievers. Right? That's what's in focus here in this text. The honor that you're going to do is the same thing in verse 15. He's talking about moral goodness. That's the honor that is being expressed. Evildoers are morally bankrupt. And regardless of that, they're going to speak evil against you, impugn your motives, and project their wickedness on you. That, that's what you get for doing that, by the way. <laughs> Speaking evil against you, you're doing good, you're morally uh, right, doing the right thing, and they're speaking evil against you and impugning their motives. They call you a racist when they really are, right? It's, 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 it's amazing. They tell you hate other people when it's really them. However, they, the text says they will see your good deeds. They, they will see that and they will glorify God for it. Note this, on the day of visitation. God will visit them. God is coming to visit them. This imagery of the visitation from the Old Testament, you could look it up. We'll spend a lot of time on it. Perhaps you've heard about it before. The day of visitation is twofold. It's, it is sometimes it is used as a day of judgment. Other times when God shows up, it is a time of deliverance. It is a deliverance or salvation for his people, judgment for those that are not. There's a visitation coming. And this is part of what we proclaim. And God will use your honorable, your good, your morally pure character from the inside that affects your outside. He, he will use this to glorify himself in either bringing people to salvation or judgment. I remember Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, he saw a godly man, a man of good character and moral behavior who was being stoned to death. Who didn't lash out and respond. And Paul recounts seeing the good deeds of Stephen. And Christ visited him. This is instrumental in him coming to salvation. In the illustration we gave with a wives with a husband, a lost husband, it, it, it was this good deeds, if you will, this moral character that's instrumental in bringing them to salvation. And that's what we pray. We pray for their salvation. 
And you want to do something then to stem the, the tide of corruption? Well, immoral people are going to do what they're going to do, but God's people can do differently, can't we? And that call to look inside, to abstain from moral evil, will be utilized by God when the gospel is preached to that person. When they think of a Christian, they'll think of you. The gospel then will be adorned for the day of visitation to when that person comes to Christ. But those that will rebel, those will continue to rebel. And you say, well, I may not have that much success. God will also use it to glorify his name in their judgment because they will not have an excuse. I can think about people personally that I'm connected to that I have seen up to their deathbed and preach the gospel to them that I didn't really get a response directly from them. But I got comfort in my heart knowing that God is such a gracious God that he would send somebody to actually care for this fool and, teach, and tell them about Christ. He's a good God. They, they will have no excuse in their day of visitation in judgment because they'll see the transforming power of Jesus Christ in your life. And they'll glorify God. By doing good, beloved, you're going to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Living a godly life will be instrumental in silencing those who actively promote rebellion against God. They're fools. They need to hear and see the wisdom of God. They need to see it adorned in the glory of his redeemed saints. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you will grant us a conviction of the truth of your word. I pray that you will use our proclamation, our prayers, and our practice of Christianity to bring about the salvation of many sons and daughters. I pray for a, a great transformation of this nation and the worldwide. May Christ be glorified in all. First, here in his church. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I want to give you a moment now to think and respond directly to Christ, not to me. There's one mediator between God and man. It is the man Christ Jesus. And you may go to him now. Sin to confess, go to him. Salvation to receive, go to him. Do so privately in the quietness of the moment. Take a moment now.
Christ alone, and you know we'll have to do the first and last. When you get to the last, we'll do number one and then number four. No guilt in life. Know this in Christ, there's no guilt. Let's sing together in Christ alone. silence the ignorance of foolish people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you.